Thank you. I'm going to uh, I'm going to tell you a little story that's probably going to refute my colleague here, somewhat. Although I'm talking about violence, my argument is a little out of place for the time and period. Picture this. There's a little log cabin, very tight, no windows, just a door on it. And it's the middle of the night. And some men are smashing at the door of that cabin with a log battering ram. And there are men inside that cabin who are screaming, help, for God's sake, while that door gets bashed down. <coughs> nobody heard their cries. Nobody really responded to their cries, I should say. And by the time the sun rose the next morning, two men were dangling from a crossbeam on Bozeman's east side. This is the story of the lynching of Z.A. Triplett and John W. St. Clair on February 1st, 1873. And this is the most ugly example of vigilante justice, and I put that word in quotes, that I have ever encountered. Unlike the more celebrated hangmen of Madison County, which we've we're both ignoring. <laughs> Nobody stepped forward after this lynching to say they were a vigilante. Nobody was particularly proud of their participation in stringing up these two guys. But my research does find some interesting parallels on this incident that illustrate some scholarly work on it, including Richard Maxwell Brown's uh, a story on No Duty to Retreat. See, vigilantism, or vigilantism, I have trouble saying that word, I don't know about you guys. It's not cool. It's a really bad thing. And you only have to look at those pictures from the South, I like to say the South, of all of those black people hanging, to convince you that this is just not a good thing in a civilized society. And the fact that we have celebrated it in this state and amongst the fraternity that I am very proud to be a member of is also not a good thing. Vigital, vigin, vig, vig, vigilanteism, boy, I do have trouble with that word. Vigilante activity is usually the result of several factors. First of all, there has to be a populace that perceives a threat. And that populace also has to embrace what is called an ideology of vigilantism. And that population has to have the infrastructure to form an extra-legal organization to carry out an execution. Now, what is this vigilante ideology? It's comprised of three things. They're hardly separable, but we'll discuss them in turn. There's the idea of self-preservation. You have a right to execute somebody because you're going to protect your community. Self-preservation. If we don't kill them, they'll kill us. There has to be a, an idea of popular sovereignty. This goes right back to the bedrock of American values. The idea that the people rule. The majority of the people rule. The people can't be wrong because the people rule. <coughs> and then there's also the right of revolution. We are a republic born out of a revolution. 
And then there, of course, there also has to be that idea of no duty to retreat. That whole idea that, no, there's no need to, to back off from this fight. I'll kill the guy instead. All of these values were in place in Bozeman in the 1870s, and we know this because of the newspapers. Because even people who spoke out against these lynchings used the arguments of vigilante ideology to refute those who participated in the lynching. Why is this so bad? I only have to point out to you recent history. Is it a good thing that people arm themselves and go to northern Nevada to help a rancher keep his cattle on public land and face down the federal government? Is this a good thing? Regardless of how you feel on the individual uh, uh, incident or, or the, uh, the cultural things that led to it, is it a good thing for a county clerk to refuse to do her job based on her perception of the right of revolution? Are these good things? Are these the values that lead Americans to be the open-handed, generous people we want them to be? We hope that they are. The ones that we say we are. And I say to you, no. These are bad things. And keep those in mind. Now, that perceived threat, it kind of works for Madison County, doesn't it? Back in 1863, 64. What do we have? We've got a bunch of people digging gold out of the ground. And we have bad guys who are killing them to take their gold. So there is that self-preservation thing going on. And there is no legal infrastructure to take care of the bad guys. But what happens once the legal infrastructure is in place? What happens when you do establish courts and laws and law enforcement? When all that stuff is in place, do you still embrace that philosophy in order to go against it? That is exactly what happened in Bozeman in this incident. At first glance, in Bozeman in 1873 presented an unlikely venue for vigilante justice. Established in 1864 as a frontier way station to service the needs of gold-seeking immigrants, Bozeman had been settled by farmers and merchants. And no, I don't think it was that violent. I really don't. I don't think that there was a wave of violence like they had in Virginia City, Alder Gulch. For the most part, for the first nine years of Bozeman's existence, it was just a quiet farming town with occasional Indian scares and your random knifings uh, being, being done by uh, frontier, <laughs> frontier militia. That James Spencer one, that's a heck of a case. So. The one thing that you need for vigilante action isn't there at the beginning of 1873 or in the early 1870s, that perceived threat of the social order. However, there was tension. You have three different classes of people, obviously, in any community. Uh, you have upper class, middle class, lower class. The upper class, they're the property owners. And they're the, ones who've only, they're the only ones who pay taxes. This is an important distinction to make when we look at Bozeman's incident here. These are the only guys who are paying taxes because they own property. Now, some of the middle class owns property too. And the lower classes, well, they're the troublemakers, aren't they? 
We have soldiers from Fort Ellis coming into Bozeman to drink at some of these saloons. We have, uh, we have Chinese prostitutes in Bozeman being run by an unsavory group of tin-horned gamblers and pimps. All this stuff is going on in our quiet little frontier town. And this doesn't really bother the upper classes because they don't really have much of a contact with these guys. But the middle classes, they're the ones who see firewood being stolen from their, from their wood piles. They're the ones who see laundry disappearing. They're the ones who have to put up with an occasional mugging. And so the reaction of that middle class to the lower classes is pretty visceral. It's, it's right there. And that was definitely happening in Bozeman. We definitely have that tension of petty crime that the middle class takes note of and that the upper class is more or less immune from. In 1872, in the late summer, this kind of change as far as petty crime is concerned, there were a rash of horse thefts in the county. And there was a successful pursuit of the criminals by Sheriff John C. Guy, Southerner, Missourian, and a Freemason. After a fierce gunfight at the outlaws' camp, three of the thieves were killed and two captured. The prisoners were Gus Callahan and George Clark, alias Paiute Jack. They both hailed from Bozeman. And one of them was the son, Callahan, was the son of a local a couple that was well known. Now, most residents, like the store clerk, a Danish immigrant named Peter Koch, predicted a swift conviction once the circuit judge arrived in town. All the boys were well known around Bozeman, some of them well liked, he wrote in a letter. But no mercy is shown to a horse thief in this country. But a mercy of sort was shown to Callahan because under Sheriff Charles Blakely, who worked for Guy, let Callahan out of jail one afternoon to do some errands downtown. <laughs> Callahan ducked into the Caillou Saloon. Someone distracted Blakely, and Callahan got out the back door and was never seen again. That would tend to upset people, that local law enforcement maybe isn't too efficient. Another incident that happened in October convinced many town folk they were in the midst of a terrible crime wave. Z.A. Triplett, a 63-year-old trapper who'd taken a dealing in Yellowstone River fish for his living, came to Bozeman to sell his catch and get drunk. One night he had a late dinner in a lunchroom on Main Street run by a Swiss immigrant named Gempler. And when time came to pay the bill, Triplett refused to pay. Gempler took uh, Triplett's overcoat as collateral. Shoved him out the door. It was a cold night. And when Gempler went in to take one of uh, Triplett's drinking buddies and throw him out too, and he appeared at the doorway, that's when Triplett put a bowie knife into his ribs and killed him. Sheriff Blakely promptly arrested Triplett, threw him in the little log jail on Bozeman's east side. So here you have a prisoner, here you have law enforcement, everything's happening the way it's supposed to. We have a criminal who killed somebody. You know, we had some horse thieves, but our law enforcement's working pretty good. We've got this guy in jail. Everything is in hand. But there's an expense. It costs money to keep people in jail, especially the Bozeman jail, which requires a night watchman all the time and food for the prisoners. And when you take a couple of petty thieves and 
you throw a murderer in there, you're feeding them all the same, and it starts getting expensive. And who gets upset about tax money being spent? I would submit to you, it is the taxpayers. And that is that upper class I was telling you about. Now, Deputy Blakely confirmed this. He said, as a matter of fact, our county was almost bankrupt this time. County warrants had been as low as 25 cents on the dollar. A lot of people angry about this. And you can imagine how angry they got in January when another petty crime happened. They would consider it petty. We would consider it pretty serious. When John W. St. Clair, popularly known as Steamboat Bill, he was a mulatto pimp, and he was described by the local paper as a young man of low instincts without character and whose life, so far as known, was passed in the haunts of vice and the purlieus of profligacy. <laughs> On Thursday afternoon, Bill went to go see his Chinese girl, get 50 cents from her because he wanted to treat a friend to a cigar. The girl wouldn't give it to him. Bill pulled his revolver out, cocked it, pointed it at her head, the gun went off, and the Chinese girl was dead. And of course, Charles Blakely went and arrested him. Got him in jail right away. There's under Secretary Blakely. So, once again, everything's fine, right? We got the guy in jail, the justice system is working, except that there was a preliminary hearing before the circuit judge could come in March. And of course, this happened at the end of January, 73. And at that preliminary hearing, Judge Samuel W. Langhorn decided to let Steamboat Bill go on his own recognizance because, and here's his logic, he shot the girl he depended on for a living, so it must have been an accident. <laughs> so Steamboat Bill begins wandering the streets of Bozeman again, and of course, who is that going to irritate? It's going to irritate both classes, middle class and upper class. The upper class are uh, uh, probably uh, happy uh, that he's out. Matter of fact, Langhorne told, directly told Sheriff Blakely, he said, well, I had to let him go. They would have kicked if he made cost. But a lot of the middle class people were arguing about it and talking about it on the street corners. And finally, Blakely went back to Judge Langhorne and said, you've got to lock this guy up. You have really irritated a lot of people. And so he did. He said, all right, here's a writ. Go, go and arrest him. But the damage had already been done. This happened on a Friday. And that Friday night... There was a lot of activity in town, and Blakely recalled it. He sent a watchman to see who was going into the Odell dance hall. That evening I sat to a rather late hour, and I got A.D. McPherson, who was a night watchman at the time, to watch Odell's, where a number of townspeople seemed to be congregating in, and report to me any action that was taken that night. The meeting nearly 11 o'clock, McPherson reported to me in the meeting, had broken up and disbanded, and the men had gone to their homes. I thought the excitement was over, but not so. Now, February 1st was a Saturday. People came into Bozeman to trade, very busy. Everything's going on. You've got the two murderers in jail. 
but you still have that angry muttering. You still have that perception that somehow the legal system just isn't working here. Somehow our community is under threat. Somehow somebody has got to do something outside of the legal system to take care of this problem. And if you have people like Malcolm Story and Lester Wilson and the other upper class ones who are going, yeah, we got a problem, they're costing us money, then action is going to be taken. Now, Peter Koch wrote, I knew nothing at all of the intentions of the vigilantes until about 2 o'clock on Saturday morning. It was pretty generally known, however, what would be done, but I'd been busy all day. I heard little of what was going on, perhaps by choice. And if Deputy Blakely heard anything about it, he went home that night. He didn't do anything on that Saturday night. Later on on Saturday night, Koch was sitting in Lester Wilson's store, and he wrote, While I was sitting in the office reading, a man came in through the back door and asked me to let him have 30 feet of rope. <laughs> I got up to cut it off for him, but he acted so strangely, and although I had no inkling of what was going on, it struck me all at once what he wanted it for. And I told him that I didn't think I wanted to sell him any rope that night. <laughs> and so, he took my refusal very quietly and he walked out. Well, later that night, Sheriff Guy heard some shouting. Now, this is what Bozeman looked like in 1873. Here's Wilson's store where, uh, where Koch was sitting. You got the little log jailhouse over here. And here on the east side of town, you have a beef swing, a slaughterhouse, where they would hoist up beef carcasses and cut them up. And here's the main street. Odell's Hall is where the meeting was. Well, later on that night, Sheriff Guy, whose office was across from the, uh, 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 from the Masonic Hall, he heard some shouting. He understood what was going on over at the jailhouse, and he pulled out his pistol, and he went running down to the Northern Pacific Hotel to try to find some volunteers. He knew what was going on. He knew some people had gathered around that jailhouse and they were going to take those guys out and they were going to lynch them. And with his pistol, waving it around, saying, come on boys, we've got to stop this. And no one in the hotel wanted to help him. They told him, well, you know, we don't have any guns, Sheriff. It's your job. When Sheriff Guy went down the main street, he was accosted by two men who he never identified. They were probably masked, taken into to custody, and hauled off the street. Now, somebody else heard that shouting, too, and that would have been Samuel Langhorn. He was on the other side of Wilson's store, and he knew what was going on. Samuel Langhorn was the justice of the peace. He represented law. He shouted for that mob to stop trying to bash in that door and take those men out. He, too was told to go back inside and mind his own business. He sent a writer to Fort Ellis, managed to get one out later on that evening, trying to get some soldiers in to stop this mob. But meanwhile, the mob had smashed down the door. They dragged those guys across Bozeman Creek, screaming. They took them to the beef swing, and they hung them. Now, we don't know if there was the ritual of a trial, you know. Usually vigilantes go through that, just kind of a sort of a, well, uh, let's hear the evidence, see if uh, these guys really do deserve to die. Give them a fair trial before we hang them. Yeah, going to give you a fair trial, then hang you. 
We don't know if they did that. We do know that, uh, well, they, they must have put him on a thing. That's Peter Koch. He was one of the ones who spoke out against it. And this was the result the next morning. This photograph was taken on the morning of February 2nd, 1873. Right there at that beef swing. You can see the bridges right behind him there, the mountains. This place stands right where that fancy subdivision is right now, the Bozeman Apartments or whatever. They must have put him on a wagon or something, let him drop. They didn't use the hoist to slowly strangle them. They were at least that merciful to allow the drop. So, being impatient with the justice system, recognizing their right of revolution, right of self-defense to take care of these two desperate killers and recognizing the convenience for the upper classes to avoid the expense of a trial. These men were hung. Violence wasn't over. The next day, one of Steamboat Bill's other girls was also murdered, probably by Chinese males who always resented the fact that females were being pimped out by their white fellow citizens. Four deaths in a matter of two days in Bozeman. You know, that's, that does kind of back up Jeff's statistic, doesn't it? <laughs> so after it was all over, there was a big argument in the newspapers Letters written to the editor, both supporting and uh, decrying the vigilante action. One of the mysterious notes that appeared at the Avant Courier was this one saying, Permit us to inform the good people of Gallatin County through the columns of your noble paper that all actions of desperados, such as strangling soldiers, shooting and stabbing white men or Chinese, is now and forever played out in this community. So mote it be. Committee 300. That infrastructure of vigilante activity that is necessary, we have ascribed to the Masonic fraternity because we already have an organization with passwords and secrets and that sort of stuff. Being a Mason myself, I deeply resent this. I must point out to you that the only people on record who tried to stop this lynching were all Masons. But this note here, by ending it with the term so mote it be, which is a very popular, uh, very, one of the few Masonic ritual uh, phrases which are publicly known, that is how a Masonic prayer is closed, rather than the word amen, so mote it be, implicates the lodge as being the infrastructure for this lynching. It's a bad thing. The argument went on, it was never resolved. Nobody ever took credit for this. No one was really proud of this, nor should they have been. But one of Z.A. Triplett's friends sent a poem into the newspaper a couple of weeks after this happened. And he talked about his friend who had been murdered with a rope. Z.A. Triplett. He killed a low-down man for stealing his overcoat. 
And who among that midnight band would not fought for what he bought? And now, goodbye to that old man. God rest his poor old soul and take him to that good land where the helpless ought to go. Thank <laughs> you.